Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the 22nd TFA Daily World Cup podcast of our World Cup series. I'm your host, Adam Scully, as ever, and we have another exciting episode for you all today. In yesterday's episode, we previewed the first semi-final between Argentina and Croatia, which kicks off tonight as of recording. And so I recommend that you go back and hear our takes on the key tactical battles to look out for ahead of the match. However, in this one, we look ahead to Wednesday night's game when reigning champions France look to be the first team to fall the valiant underdogs in Morocco to reach the second consecutive final. The game will certainly be an interesting uh, one from a tactical perspective. And so to help me tactically preview the fixture, I'm joined by TFA analysts Brian Marquez and David Astill, who wrote the preview for the TFA website, which was published this morning for you to check out as well. I highly recommend that you do, as David is a superb wordsmith. Nonetheless, if you can't be bothered, well then shame on you, but he is also here today to help break down the game for you. So not to worry. Also, we get quite a lot of daily listeners on this podcast. You have very few, if any of you, have given us a rating. If you're listening to this, could I kindly ask you to rate the podcast? Five stars, hopefully. Even if you hate me, I fully understand why, but please, please give the podcast five stars. So now that I've lost my dignity, let's dive right into the analysis. Brian, David, thank you so much for joining me today to preview what will likely be an interesting tactical battle, although it might, may not be very entertaining between France and Morocco. But first, before we jump into that, there's some a trending topic at the minute in social media about the England management position, because yesterday, I believe, the Daily Star released a report, again, take it with a pinch of salt, they released a report saying that Gareth Southgate will likely step down from his position in the new year after discussions with the FA even though essentially the FA kind of wanted him to stay on until at least the Euros in 2024, he feels, and he hinted at it, to be fair, in his uh, post-match interview where he said something like, um, it takes a lot out of you, so he, you, you get the sense of he's kind of born out in a way. Then there's been discussion online about whether the next England manager should be English, essentially, because there's some great foreign coaches out there. You have Rafa Benitez is available. You have Thomas Tuchel is available. Mauricio Pochettino. Again, you also need to take into consideration the fact that a lot of managers don't like international management. They prefer club football. So that's an important thing to know. But David, I'll start with you. You know, you see the stat that says no foreign coach has ever won the World Cup outside their own their, their own country, essentially. Does that, I mean... I suppose, do you, do you agree with the fact then that, that you're English yourself, obviously, that the next England manager should be English, maybe it'd be an Eddie Howe or, you know, whoever, I suppose, <laughs> fits the bill? Um, I can see why people are thinking that. And, you know, personally, I'd love the next England manager to be English, but I've always been a fan of, you know, get the best person for the job, regardless of where they come from. Um, you know, they could be from some remote island country but if they're the best person for the job get them in um and i've always said that you know it's like when when a chairman at domestic clubs appoint their managers you know sometimes you appoint them because they're big names but most people appoint them um because of their tactics because of the way that they want to play and i think i want my team to play that way so i've always been a fan of appoint the best person who's going to get the job done regardless of where they come from so yes it'd be nice to get an english manager because you know you always want to have that sense of your manager comes from and understands, if you like, your culture. Mm -hmm. And that goes for whichever country it is. You want your manager to understand the culture of where 
you know, how your team plays and all the history and everything, but get the per- best person for the job. And, and if that's English, fine. If it's not, fine. You know, that, that's the way I see it. Yeah, and, and just, I find it, um, <clears throat> you know, when you see you had England themselves, I suppose, in the past, had Sven Goran Eriksson, you had Fabio Capello, two managers I I feel it's maybe fair to say underperformed because they had they had really good players. Capello less so than Sven had at a certain stage because Capello, I suppose, was coming through the, to, in, from the, the back of a lot of the really talented English generation's careers like the Gerard Lampard's goals, etc. With Sven, obviously, he had that golden generation of people like the Harpak to... But then you look at England's most successful managers, and I suppose it's fair to say, again, this is, Serena Voigman's not English, and she she's with Alf Ramsey and Gareth Southgate, the most successful English managers of all time. When it comes to the men's side, you've Southgate, probably Sir Bobby Robson, maybe, and then Sir Alf Ramsey, again, all English, whereas the more foreign coaches have have failed. I, I, I think it's a difficult one because right in here, well, as you said, you, you get the per- best person in for the job. When you look at the, the English managers that are linked with the English job, I mean, the, it doesn't fill you with much confidence of the, that you look at those names and say, well, they're going to win a World Cup. Now, that being said, international management works kind of differently to club football, so it's not necessarily... I mean, Stephen Gerrard could come in and win a World Cup, but I would... I know for myself, I'd rather hedge my bet on a Jose Mourinho. You know, would you agree with that, or do you think that there is? I suppose. I, I suppose the best way to to put it is: that, Do you think that it matters really? I suppose is the best way is the best question to ask because it's, it's tricky. It's a, it's a tricky one to ask questions this because there's obvious reasons why I'm skirting around certain issues because a lot of the people who believe, and I'm just going to say on the podcast, a lot of people who believe that the English manager should be English are using are doing so with very. Um, very dangerous belief systems, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, um, I've, I've seen some of the stuff people have been saying, and it is, a, it is a tricky issue. You know, the stuff that you kind of think, I want to not get involved in that side of it. But like I said, it comes down to the best person for the job. And ultimately, if that means going out and getting someone from France, Germany, Brazil, wherever, we've got to do it because... You know, we've, we've, we've got to the stage now with the England team. And again, it comes down to the culture. You've got to understand the players because you don't spend that much time with them compared to, when, you know, with the clubs. You get them for, what, two weeks with international mm-hmm. breaks. And you do that every now and again. Then obviously you get your major tournaments when you get a month or so with them and a bit beforehand um, for preparation. Apart from that, these players don't really come together that much. So that time that you've got with them, you've got to make count. And that comes down to understanding the players. So you've got to get a manager in who knows, not necessarily knows the players, but knows what, what the players can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's something Gareth Southgate's done really well. He's sort of fostered that culture where they come in. You can set, you can tell it's a team environment. Everyone gets on with everyone. And that then translates onto the pitch. So I think if you, if you get the right person who understands the players and understands that that sort of, friendship if you like that's what builds success and, and I think you know the teams that haven't succeeded is because the, the manager hasn't quite got that atmosphere if you like so Gareth Southgate's done that well um you know when 
teams that have won the World Cup and have been successful on the world stage have generally got that right. So you've got to get the manager in who will do that. Because otherwise, you're not going to get the success on the pitch because the players won't work together. And that's the criticism England have had in the past from fans is they've been a team of individuals but haven't been a team as such. Um, and that's that comes down to the manager not getting that culture right. So like I said, you've got to get that that manager in who knows the players and what they want to do and how they can play and all their strengths and weaknesses, which Gareth Southgate has got. So, I mean, for me, I would love him to stay. I'm a huge, huge fan of Gareth Southgate. Regardless of, you know, what happened in the year, he turns up for big tournaments and ultimately that's what you want from your manager. You'd, you'd rather have a manager who does a, has a really, you know, bad year, if you like, with some some poor results, but turns up for the World Cup, turns up for the Euros, as <clears throat> excuse me, as Gareth Southgate has rather than it being the other way around, where you flop into tournaments, but you, you, your build-up to the tournaments is really good. So, yeah, it, it's a difficult one. I think, does, it I, ma- does it matter? Yeah. But see, I think when, especially when we come from an English angle, you do, again, toe the line of being very careful about what you say, because there's, again, there's a lot of people that, are, that have very dangerous belief systems that are using this as an argument for, or to, to really put their points across I, I should say but then you look at countries that are non-English for a second so we'll go through so Colin Miller has just tweeted out something that's just fascinating he looked at Argentina Spain Brazil Italy Germany Hol- uh, the Netherlands France and Portugal the last time Argentina heard a non-national was 1934 the last time Spain heard a non-national was 62 Brazil 65 Italy 67 Germany 74 uh, the Netherlands, 78. France, never. And then Portugal, 1966. That's, um, that is quite telling when you, can you, when you consider, I suppose, how much more successful some of those nations have been on the international stage than England in recent years and on the men's side. So again, but Brian, I'll, I'll come to you on this because this, this, this does play into a argument, not an argument, a debate, I suppose, we had a few days ago on the podcast about Fernando Dean is and his, you know, the positionism versus relationism aspect. If Brazil were to hire a manager then from Europe, you can see the, I don't want to say hatred, but a lot of frustration and anger towards Chiche when he was in charge because of the European style of football he was bringing to Brazil, where they want to keep, where they want to keep their own, their own style essentially that they've always played. I don't want to say samba style because it's lazy. That's lazy punditry, really, but a very different style than Europe. Whereas if you put another European manager in charge now, you know that those European ideas are going to be implemented on the side. So what are your thoughts then with that information on, on, I suppose, the debate of should your national team hire a national of your own country? Yeah, I was going to take out that example too, the one that we were talking about, Dini's and all that, because I think it could be the right moment to break history like we talk about with Italy and Catanacho and all that, that they changed the way they play. And I think this is the moment to break traditions and history and hire a foreign manager for, for England. But with your question of Brazil, I would think the people will be mad because of the this relationism and positionism talk. But it's I think it's the way that Tite played his positional football because it's not the same if you have Pep Guardiola in playing positional football 
uh, in comparison to Tite, obviously. But then if you have, I think it was a rumor also that Jose Mourinho was one of the men, uh, the, the nominees for this charge. So mm. I think Jose Mourinho wouldn't be a man allowed <laughs> to coach at Brazil and people were mad. And I think people will be even mad in Brazil with Guardiola because this boring chat and talk about they want to make the national team European and all that. Uh, it, it's boring and it's obviously their, their narrative and they want it like that. So, I mean, I won't, see, I, I can't see a foreign manager for Brazil like Guardiola or Mourinho. But in the case of England, I think it could be the time I agree with David is, is, is the person is from, I don't know, a remote island as well, but he's the right person to, to be on charge. That, is, that, that has to be. Why not thinking of Tuchel, Pochettino, or maybe... Pep Guardiola, who said, I, I think he recently said that he would like to to coach a national team. Guardiola I, I said he, was... he he would coach Brazil and he's one of the favourites to take over from Chiche at the Brazilian national <laughs> team. But as you said, people were quite annoyed at Chiche for his positionism. I mean, God knows what they'll do if Guardiola takes over. He's the inventor of, I suppose it's fair to say, that style. Yeah, uh, obviously the, the things they are saying about this are dangerous in a way because um, they're obviously going to another part, talking about foreign coaches and all that. But it, it's the kind of, it's the context of each country because in my country, for example, we wanted a, a foreign coach like for years. So <laughs> it, it's really a different history at, at, several countries but if you think of the english managers right now eddie howe and graham potter are the best uh, in the country right now but they are really like settled in their teams and their projects so mm -hmm. i don't know has recently joined chelsea and how how he is like really settled at Newcastle. So I don't see them taking the national team. And then you have Lampard, Gerard, that are, are tough choices because they haven't been that good for their clubs. Yeah. And did you know that Sam Allardyce is available? Ooh. No, of course. <laughs> we won't go down that route. But just playing devil's advocate on the other side, I suppose there is an argument that if Every player has to be of Irish descent. No, sorry, not of Irish descent. But, uh, selfish of me to say, but of that country's descent, or to be born in that country or have some sort of relation to it, then there should be an argument. The, the manager should too. But of course, that does that is a bit of a that is a bit difficult to track, I suppose, because players just have to be. I think it's like what two a grandmother or something. Is, I can't remember the the, the exact. Cut off it, it depends, I think, on which country. Some will have grandmothers. Some will yeah. say you've got to be born in the country. And, and then Tony Cascarino. Tony Cascarino just went to an Irish pub one day, and he he got to play for Ireland. <laughs> Fascinating. I'm sorry. I, uh, sorry, I shouldn't have said that on air, but it's it's mental that he played for Ireland. But anyway, we will move on. It's a it's a it's a debate that will continue on and on, and I think we covered most of the bases on this. 
in this chat, but we will move on to the game between France and Morocco. David, Morocco are, are, are in my lifetime anyway, which granted isn't that long, you know, compared to the overall length of the competition since it began nearly 100 years ago. Morocco are one of the best underdog stories I think we've ever seen. They're the first African nation to reach the the semi-finals of a World Cup and, and they genuinely have a chance to win it. I mean, we we still have that part in our mind that says, nah, there's no chance they beat France. But <laughs> they've beaten Belgium, they've beaten Spain, they beat Portugal, why not? I think it has been the World Cup of shocks, hasn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. how many times have we sat in front of the TV or or in the case of those who have been there, see, sat in teams and just seen something happen and think, I did not see that coming. Um you know, so, so you look at that and you say, yeah, they're happy shots. But actually, if you look at Morocco's performances, um, you can see that they, have to, they, have, they haven't been surprises, if you like. They have deserved to win the matches that they have won. They haven't sort of got lucky, if you see what I mean, you know, um, with opponents playing badly. I mean, they have played badly, but Morocco have deserved to win because they haven't sort of sat back and just got a lucky break, for example. They have, they have competed. Um, and you look at their style of play as well. It's calm. It's measured. It's it's collected. You know, they they know what they want to do, and they play that way regardless of who they're facing. Um, you know, you get the likes of Ziyech on the ball, Sofiane Bouffal on the ball. You know, start spraying the ball from side to side um, with accuracy, and you know they they catch teams out. They use the space as well. So if once they, when they get on the ball, they could be tricky to get to get off it, if that makes sense. So um, yeah, they've got a real chance to win it if they, they just need to stick to their guns, stick to what they know, and you know they anything could happen. As I said, it's the World Cup of shocks. We've seen so many different things happen. Anything could happen. They have the best defense of the World Cup so far. I don't recall a team having a better defense in recent years. Although I could be wrong. I'm guessing you'd have to go back to maybe Italy 2006, if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, they have only conceded one goal so far at the World Cup, which was an own goal. So nobody has actually managed to really break them down and score. It came from quite an unfortunate own goal against Canada. So far from that one, I suppose, as I said, they conceded one goal, but they've only conceded an expected goal against of 4.92. Oh, sorry, I shouldn't say only. That is quite high, but the the... The difference in their how many goals they've actually conceded and their XG against is stark, showing that, well, maybe, I mean, a number of factors. The opponent's finishing hasn't been good enough. The goalkeeper's been excellent or they've blocked a lot of shots. Ryan, they've looked unbreakable at times at this World Cup. How can how can France break through them, essentially? Yeah, that statistic is absolutely mad. Like, oh, they have only conceded one goal and it's an own goal. It's... It's crazy. It's like a dream for a team that wants to be defensively solid. That is mad. And if you see Morocco, you don't see a team like passive and going deep and going back. They have a a type of high line, not that high, but that is really high for them. And that is looking really good. And the way they their wingers... Um, go narrow and go wide and defend like really well. Then Amrabat is a beast covering his center backs and fullbacks and all the ground. That has been really good and really massive for for Morocco and the way they counterattack 
has been really good. Touching on uh, that, sorry, just not to, sorry to interrupt you, Brian, but just touching on that point about Amrabat, uh, I wrote a scout report on, at the weekend about him, but I've also released a, I've released a few tweets of Amrabat's defensive territory. One's going out tomorrow again because I just, I can't push it enough. It's incredible. But so much of his work comes on that right side because Akraf Hakimi gets so high up the pitch that he yeah. has to constantly come across and cover or else they'd be screwed, essentially. I mean, you see his interceptions and tackles he makes. There's so many on that side. Because Hakimi's given that license to get forward. So when they're caught in transition, he has to step across. Yeah. That's going to be something to, to, to watch out for against France, though, because Kylian Mbappe's on that that's side. That's the side, <laughs> yeah. that's the side of, of France. And if you see the heat map, of France attacking threat and possession on the tournament is normally over the left side of the pitch because of Tio Hernandez and mm. Kylian Mbappe and also the movements of Rabiot pinning one of the midfielders to then make Mbappe appear and all that. And, and it's the kind of wing that always Griezmann looks to combine. And, and, and that is kind of that is a way that France could be obviously looking to to attack. But how many times could we are going to see Hakimi going long? I don't know. In this match, it's obviously going to be different. But that kind of Amrabat coverings and defensive um, actions over the right is. I remember one team like doing this uh, severally. It was Liverpool with Henderson. Mm-hmm. with Alexander Arnold and, and and you have to be really at your peak level to do this constantly and Amrabat is doing great i think one of the ways france could be exploiting this is obviously the high line from from morocco is not that high but if mbappe just gets to the space is going to be map and france have kind the kind of passers to break this line. And then you go to the other side of the pitch for France and is the right back. The right back normally plays a bit inverted. Kunde. It was Jules Kunde. He came inside and kind of created that back three where Theo Hernandez was given yeah. the license to get forward. Yeah. Exactly. And he's playing inside. And I think that could maybe confuse the wingers and midfielders of that side to go or not to go, and then Dembele or the right winger that Dejam is going to choose, I think he's, there, he's, he's going to for, for Dembele. Um, he could be free to attack there, so that could be the moment, the, 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 the moments for France to attack, the high line with the space for Mbappe and the mm-hmm. inverted fullback that is going to help to pin players and make confusion to the midfielder and winger to go and then create space behind them. So, but I think the commitment and coordination of Morocco's block is absolutely great and one of the best we have seen in this kind of tournament. So, I agree. We it, have, it kind we of makes to, it an art. Yeah, it, it 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 makes it almost like an art, and it's it's so entertaining to watch how they. I mean, Wamalilo spoke about it in his in that infamous um, man yells a cloud. Uh, interview he did with The Athletic where he spoke about how Morocco can I, I don't think he directly named Morocco but I mean I don't see anyone better at the tournament doing it from how they shift from one side of the pitch to the other in, in their block yeah. I mean it's yeah. he said they move faster than the ball 
which is which is so true. I mean, they're so so well coordinated, so well drilled. David, I plugged your preview in the introduction, uh, but I'll I'll plug it again here. If you haven't checked it out, please go read it. You wrote the preview for this game for the TFA website. Brian's broke down there essentially how how France can break down Morocco and and that extremely well compact or well drilled and compact defensive block. How come Morocco take advantage of France then? Because against Spain they they did it in penalties. They they really weren't threatening. But against Portugal they looked that they I mean they had several chances to kill the game off, especially in the second half. I remember one where he just didn't go around the keeper for some reason. Yeah, there's it is tricky because France have a very solid system um when when they're out of possession. You've got the front three who sort of form almost like an arrow shape. They they sort of stay really compact. Then you've got the three behind who um stay a bit a bit more sort of straight line, but they'll move across to the outside midfield and moves across whichever the side the ball's on. So that that'll close the ball down. And then you've got the back four who obviously do, you know, the defensive work, they'll they'll move across the pitch as well. So they've got that sort of rigid shape, if you like. Um but whilst that forces uh, opponents to play the ball out to the wing, where it's always easier to, you know, it's easier to block across than it is to stop balls coming through the middle. And that takes me on to where France have shown weaknesses, which is going through the middle. You look at Tunisia's goal that, that scored against France, went through the middle. Kasri got the ball, charged through the middle. France had no idea how to deal with it. You look at um, the England match, the last one, Saka playing through the middle. England got him off the wing, playing through the middle, and every time he got on, on the ball in the middle, um, in between the midfield defence or midfield forward lines, he was causing problems. Again, France had no idea how to deal with him, so that really is where Tunisia have to focus their efforts. If they're going to beat France, they have to they have to attack through the middle. It's going to be difficult because France will have that richer shape, but if they can find the gaps like England did, like Tunisia did, um, They've got a chance because, like I said, that's when France sort of stop and look at each other and say, well, I'm, do I go for that one or do you go or do I hold my position? They, they don't quite know for, for some reason. They don't seem to know when the balls go through the middle how to deal with it. So if Morocco are going to have a chance breaking France down, that's where they have to attack. Um, yeah, if they, if they play down the wing, it'll be easy or should be easy for France because they've got the players. You know, you've got, we talked about Rabiot, we talked about Hernandez, we talked about Jules Koundé. Um, and we talked about that that shape that will just make it easy for them to to block and repel most Moroccan efforts, and and the ones that do go in will likely be cleared. But if they attack through the middle, it's a it's a completely different story. Yeah, and just in your piece, you actually there was one moment specifically that you highlight, which was I believe in the second half, and I remember watching the game and I was blown away. John Stones literally he he puts his foot on the ball forcefully, and it provokes I think I can't remember what player it was to step out, and he just. Almost toe poked it behind them into Saka. Yeah, and he was just and, and, and he was able to yeah. turn. It was it was just mind blowing. And, and that's like, that's the point that they have so much space. They leave so Francis is leaves so much space in between their ranks that it is easy. That's why we saw Saka get into those positions. And uh, like you said, the amount of time he had to turn, control the ball, pick his pass. That's what Morocco have to look at, and that's what they have to build their their game plan around in attack. And how about transitions then? Because. Both sides are really good in transition. I would imagine, like against England, you saw what Gareth Southgate did so well was to keep Walker back to deal with Mbappe. And Mbappe was anonymous for large parts of the game. I don't think France will have as many transitional opportunities in this game because Morocco won't really come out that much. And they, they'll know the danger they possess with Dembele and Mbappe, so they won't come out that much. But France will leave a lot of space at the back because they will be the ones high up the pitch. How can How can... 
I suppose I suppose I should ask how can France stop Morocco's transitional ability because they are so good with Hakimi, Ziyech, Bufal, then and Nezri running through the middle. I mean, it's excellent to watch at times, but it's very powerful. Uh, there's there's so much pace, power, unpredictability, and it's it's amazing to watch. Yeah, there's one other player that really has, and the fact that he wasn't mentioned in that list probably shows the point he's gone completely under the radar, in, in my view, which is Azadine Unahi mm-hmm. in midfield. Um, against Portugal, he was, for me, the, the best Moroccan player on the pitch because he made everything tick. He was the one that was leading charges out from the back when they're in transition. He was the one who was getting on the ball and... Um, you know, making those those passes, making those judgments. Um, a lot of what Morocco did well against Portugal in transition when they were in the final third, when they were in their own third, came through Unahi. So for me, if France are going to have any chance of stopping Morocco in those transitions, they need to get hold of Unahi, not literally get hold of him, it's not rugby, but they need to, to track him down, they need to mark him, they need to, to isolate him. If they can do that and they can stop him passing to the likes of Siesh and, and, and Nasiri, um, Bufal, whoever, then they might be able to cut off those supply routes, if you like. But I think Unahi is the key player for me. He's the one that France have to get a hold of. Um, and that that will then, hopefully, in for France, that will then get that knock-on effect, if you like, that they'll stop the supply lines. And Sofian Bufal as well has been such a dangerous player for Morocco. And I remember him in the Premier League. He scored one goal in particular. Uh, I think it might have been it may have been against West Brom, but I can't remember. Don't quote me on that. And it was so so good. I mean, he took on several players while dribbling from his own half right through, and he put it into the corner. That was when he was in Southampton, obviously, and it didn't quite work out for him there. But then I watched him at this World Cup, and I did. I, I find it tragic that it didn't work out for him in England because he's so exciting. And I looked at his ball progression map uh, in terms of his ability to carry the ball forward from Morocco, and in the space of five matches. It's 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 ridiculous how many times he's taken on players successfully too, but I, I I hope we get to see a bit more of that tomorrow. Obviously, we will when when Morocco look to hit France in transition. Brian, David, thank you so much for joining me today. This was a really interesting chat to say the least. To all the listeners at home, I hope you enjoyed too, and make sure to tune in tomorrow as we tactically review the colossal semi final between Argentina and Croatia which is set to kick off in just a few hours after we finish recording now. So check back in for that, and please share the podcast too, as it really helps us grow. Also, please give the podcast a rating of five stars. It helps in more ways than you know. Thank you all for listening, and goodbye for now.